This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. This is the postgame pod after Ohio State's 45 to 12 victory over Arkansas State at the shoe on Saturday. I'm Nathan Baird, along with Stephen Means, Doug Lay Maurice, moving his daughter into college. He was away this weekend and um, saw a car on the way into the shoe that was a Georgia license plate and it just said robots. And I thought, well, this is the real reason Doug's and he knew the robots were coming. He knew the well, robots. Let me make sure Stetson played today and was not indeed in Columbus driving around in a car called robots. Okay. Yes, he did play today. So it wasn't Stetson. Georgia beat uh, Samford 33 to nothing. That was one of the more normal results that have happened in college football today. We're going to get to that on the third portion of this podcast uh, but the rest of this podcast is going to be listen buckeye talk is of the people for the people and sometimes by the people and today that's gonna be the case we're going old school a little bit with it we're gonna go to the the texter comments texter questions 614-350-3315 if you're not a subscriber yet now is a great time to get in because it's a two-week free trial there's it's just literally there's just no downside two-week free trial and it's so easy to quit you just send us a Four letters stop and you don't get charged. So you can try us for two weeks. Uh, today, you and I, Stephen, I thought you did a great job going down to the field and just being right there as Julian Fleming and Jackson Smith and Jigbo were trying to get loosened up, warmed up for today. I don't know if there was ever really a chance that they were going to play today because they both shut it down pretty early. But I, we're going to get right to that, the status of them, because in the long run of the season, that's maybe the most important thing that's happening right now. Both receivers, neither receiver played. I should say that. They both came into Ohio Stadium before the rest of the team. Both tried to warm up or went through some loosening. And then by the time they came out, just by the position groups, they had basically shut it down. Ryan Day said he'd like to get them on the field against Toledo, but it's only going to happen if they're 100%. There was a big, like, gulf of what that means, like 100%. Like, so literally, like, can't like no problem like i don't know i don't know what that means it gives them an an out to keep them both on the bench through toledo but still sounds like they're talking about both i I had wondered in in the case of fleming especially if there maybe been a setback because he seemed so close to playing last week and did not seem close at all to playing this week but it might have just been a thing where they were like we're not even gonna we're not gonna push it yeah, I, I did, Ohio State picked a good week to play Arkansas State. Have no teenagers here because that's all I could put my focus on. Were people who were actually on the team pregame, and what I saw, I wanted to look at faces. I wanted to look at reactions to things because when you're talking about soft tissue injuries, it's it is kind of like a day to day thing until it's completely healed. And Jackson looked fine. Jackson Smith the Jigba looked like 
if they were playing Notre Dame this week, he probably would have given it a go and at least tried it, even if he didn't last past the first series, just by how he was moving around. And he seemed very sure of himself going through the workouts they were trying to go through. Julian and Fleming, on the other hand, I'm not going to say he didn't look like he was ready to play this week, but he didn't look like he was ready to play this week. And even as he's coming off the field, we just have to walk by each other. So I'm just like, because I have a decent relationship with Julian. I was just like, hey, feeling good? Just for the sake of you know making conversation. And he's like, I'm getting there. Those were his exact words. But it wasn't his facial expression and the way he responded and the way he was walking around didn't – it didn't look like this was a kid who, if they were playing an opponent where they needed him, he would have been ready for them to go. So I, we don't know much other than that. But if you're going to like off the information we do have, that's a safe assumption to make that maybe there was a little bit of a setback with a guy who does have an injury history. Let's go right to the texture questions uh, from the 918. We leaned on Marvin, that'd be Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Abuka heavily, and they balled out. When JSN and Fleming get back, do we take an exponential jump, a mild jump, or no jump, and we just change which hands are catching 197 yards and three touchdowns? That's an interesting question. I think, though, that this offense is still missing Jackson Smith and Jigba. It may also be missing Julian Fleming. I thought they missed him less today, The way, but it was because of the way Arkansas State was playing they really could use a deep threat and they just turned Marvin Harrison into that deep threat and, and Mbuka to, to some extent, but you know, last week against Notre Dame, they really missed Jackson Smith the Jigba because they were playing back. They were dropping eight and he could really work a lot underneath in a game like that and, and get some yards after the catch today. I think they, they would have missed him too. And he could have obviously been a vertical threat, but Fleming was the one who I think maybe could have really feasted today. And that's where I think that he's, I said coming into the year that I thought Julian Fleming needed a good season more than Ohio state needed a good season from Julian Fleming, maybe because he needs to establish himself. And I think he's legitimately, it's not his fault. He can't, he's had really bad injury luck, but at some point, like he, this would have been, a, it looked like on paper, a really good opportunity for him to get in. We, I was talking uh, before the game to somebody about this. Like, I can't remember a time where he was able to play in a really advantageous situation, like play a lot of snaps in a really advantageous mm-hmm. situation. I guess the Rose Bowl might have been the best scenario of that, where you're playing a Utah team that like wasn't very didn't really have real defensive backs in their secondary for that game in a couple of cases. So this would have maybe been the best opportunity for like his health and an undermanned opponent to come together. And he could have had sort of a confidence building day. And instead he's still just trying to get on the field. Uh, I think a better way to put it is he's yet to play in a game and start in it where he was supposed to be out there because even the Rose Bowl, it's like, well, it's because of the situation they were in. They ended up going with the young guys because Chris and Garrett decided to go prepare to be pros. This would have been his first game where it's non-consequential if he makes a couple mistakes. But then also we just could have seen him flash because Arkansas State's corners were just not going to keep up with Ohio State's wide receivers. So every wide receiver in that room other than Jackson Smith and Jigba would have benefited from a day like today because of that experience they would have been getting. And that's what we saw. Uh, um, yes, obviously, they would rather have Jackson Smith the Jigba out there. But quote-unquote silver lining is 
Ameka Abuka and Marvin Harrison Jr. are getting extended opportunities to build chemistry with C.J. Stroud and build confidence because they're out there. While Julian Fleming, I mean, maybe he plays next week, maybe he doesn't, but to Ryan Day's point, I think they need everybody to play next week because they're gearing up to get ready to get back to real football. You want to take a victory lap on getting your Marvin Harrison Jr. touchdown prediction back on track? I can't believe how accurate I was. Somebody, one of the textures pointed this out. I guess I said on the pod when I was asked this question, plus if Jackson Smith, the Jigba doesn't play, Marvin could very well have three touchdowns. So I'll, I'll pat myself on the back for that throwaway. But listen, we're just going to keep driving this bus along. You're going to keep driving your Mike Hall bus and it's working out in your favor. I'm going to keep driving this Marvin Harrison bus. The Mike Hall bus drives itself. The Mike Hall bus <laughs> is uh, is pointed downhill and just rolling. We'll get to that. We're going to talk about the defense in the second section of this podcast. We're still focused on offense here, but I mean, Marvin Harrison Jr., it, it didn't, the connection really wasn't completely there in that first game. But again, some of that was what Notre Dame was taking away. Mm-hmm. And this game, I was impressed. The thing I was impressed with the most, he's the second Ohio State receiver to have two three touchdown games in his career. Joey Galloway did it in 93 and 94. And now Marvin Harris has done it twice in three games, going back to the Rose Bowl last year. Mm-hmm. The thing that impressed me the most was the first touchdown was a lot of yards after the catch. He gets a crossing route and just takes off and finishes it off. The second touchdown was him getting behind the defense and getting hit in stride and, and looking like a, a real like vertical threat, a guy who can take the top off. And then the third one, I actually don't even remember. Um, it's as much um, the-, the third one is why I picked that as like my extreme thing. It's cover two. And there's actually a quarterback drill for this. It's called the rail shot drill where you have to hit a guy perfectly or you're going to get him hurt or you're going to get the ball picked. And it's against cover two, going, the X receiver is just going up the sideline, vertical route, and it's got to be perfect timing, and the throw has to actually be above the receiver's head to where only he can get it. So it's a combination of great route by Marvin Harrison because he beat his defensive back off the line of scrimmage, but then C.J. Stroud with the perfect timing and the perfect ball placement. And that one was for 30 yards. Yeah. And Ryan Day was really raving about Marvin Harrison's route running at the end of the game. And that was, again, a a day like today where Arkansas State was going to, you know, kind of stuff the box and make Ohio State beat it, be more precise with the pass. And it's it's I don't know. Pick your poison. If you're Arkansas State, like, what are they supposed to do? Like if they if they had played, if they had dropped eight, then then Trevor Henderson was going to just have, he was going to do what Doug maybe kind of predicted that he was going to do in a game like this, just sort of eat all day. And Arkansas state went with maybe the, um, the, 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 the approach where there was a higher, a greater degree of, of potential to get, you know, get a turnover, get a sack, whatever. Um, but I thought just Marvin Harrison jr. The Rose bowl was a, a coming out party for him to put him on the map. I mean, his name put him on the map, but th- that that put his play on the map. But I thought today was a good reinforcement. I know it's just Arkansas State, but he really got to show like all facets. He really got to. I thought he looked like a complete threat out there, and a the kind of complete threat that when you go play a tougher team later this season, maybe we're supposed to cross Wisconsin off that list. Man, we had really bullseyed that for a couple weeks from mm-hmm. now. I don't know. I don't know so much anymore. Uh, they lost today, Washington State. Again, we'll talk more about that later. But it is, you know what I'm saying? Like, I felt like yeah. this was almost a more impressive performance than the Rose Bowl because I just saw him doing so many different things 
in so many different facets that that he could be a he was he could be an elite like number one receiver maybe as early as this year with all of the different skills that he can package together. He looked the way you would expect an elite uh, X receiver to look like, and I was on as I'm watching the game. It's like this is what you want from your X receiver when you're playing a team who likes to play man coverage and at and often go single high coverage. And it got to the point with me where it was like single high safety, press man, it's going to Marvin. And every time that happened, it went to Marvin and it ended up being a touchdown. And then he had some other plays in there as well. But it was that's what you want. That's what Garrett Wilson was. It's one-on-one, your backside. You're not going in motion and doing all that stuff. There's no help. There's typically no help from a safety. It's just you in the corner. How many times can you win? Now, you're playing Arkansas State, so obviously you expect the Ohio State wide receiver to win more times than not. But this looked like it was replicable going down the line no matter who we're playing here because we're talking about 6'4", 205 with a lot of the same, you know, catch radius and all of the stuff that Garrett had just in a bigger body. So yeah, I agree with you last year was cool and all, but it was against running backs. This was against actual corners where he is supposed to be out there and some real development. Now let's see that continue throughout the season. Andrew from the seven two four. I got a question very much like this for Hey Nathan last week. Um, would be interesting to hear you guys talk about the Buckeye wide receiver speed post Williams, Olave Wilson, and without JSN the first two games. Abuka and Harrison have looked good so far, but I'm not sure if I'm seeing the elite game-breaking speed those previous four had. I think you're seeing Bama miss JMO's speed as well. And what I said when I responded to this for Hey Nathan was, I disagree. <laughs> I, I think they're fine on speed. I think what you saw against Notre Dame was, a you saw Notre Dame play a style of defense that wasn't going to let receivers break free. I mean, they're, they're dropping guys in coverage. They're keeping two safeties over the top. You weren't going to see somebody break one off in a big way against a defense playing back like that. And today you saw more situations like that. I thought Harrison showed that speed. I think Abuka has shown that speed. Do I think they will look faster when Jackson Smith and Jigba and Julian Fleming play? Yes. Do I think like even Jaden Ballard, who they've talked about from a speed standpoint, do I think he probably needs more seasoning and more development in order to display that on a field? I do. Some of this also, like Ryan Day said, he was asked about, he got a, one of the like uh, the goofy, uh, uh, here's a reader question from Myrtle in uh, East Liverpool yeah. or whatever. And like the, what whatever, the, the, the radio show questions. And somebody asked who are the fastest players on the team. And when he read off players, he said that they were running, high 22s, low 23s in miles per hour. Now, I don't know the context of that. I wasn't there when they recorded those, and I don't know <laughs> what what uh, what method they're using. But I found a sporting news article that said the fastest on-field single-play speed in the NFL in 2020 was Raheem Mostert, who was playing, was at the time a running back for the 49ers and who was a football player and track sprinter at at Purdue and he ran like 23.0 something. So Ryan day, again, again, I don't, whatever context those numbers have, I don't know. But what he's saying is they've still got NFL speed in their receiver core. And I, I'm not, I'm not looking at that team on the field thinking this is a plotting receiver core and that's holding Ohio state back in some way. I agree with you. And I agree with the question because Brian Hardline said that 
that they don't have necessarily the Olave Wilson speed, but understand that Olave and Wilson were like crazy fast. Well, yes, they're both crazy fast. Yes. They had four, three speed. That's not normal. These wide receivers still have like four, four speed, which is still pretty quality for wide receivers, but also there's more to getting open than just being faster than somebody. This is where I was going to go with it. And that's what I said. Yeah. In the answer was that don't forget that separation is not really about speed. Yes. It's about, separation. The separation at the line is not really about speed, it, it, but even like at the top of the route, sometimes it's not depending on what the route is. It's more about how can you sell where you're going versus where you're actually going? How's your technique? What's your footwork look like? Yeah. It's cool to be JMO fast. It's cool to be Chris Olave fast, but I mean, Devontae Adams isn't like the fastest receiver in the NFL. He's just stupid good at running routes. And so he's always open. And that's, I think, what even Brian Hartline was saying when he said that comment was, no, we don't have that speed, but this, these guys have their own mismatch issues. And theirs is they're bigger than everybody. They're all built for tough, for lack of a better way to put it. Well, also, as Ryan Day said, Marvin Harrison is a much more rich, a much more mature route runner than he should be for somebody his age. That's where their advantage is. So don't get so caught up in, you know, they're not going to run four threes at the combine. Maybe they run a four, four, one instead, because that stuff is cool. But NFL scouts are looking at Marvin Harrison heavy because he's a really good route runner and he's kind of a freak at that size. And it's why those guys went in the top 12 picks of the draft because they yes. were running that time and they could do the other thing. And I'm yes. not sitting here saying Ohio State's better off if it doesn't have 4-3 speed, 4-2 speed, whatever, mm-hmm. at the receiver position. Because obviously James Williams, as this texter pointed out, could blaze it too. But what I am saying is, you know, when I was at the coaches clinic this summer and listening to Tim Walton do a presentation on cornerback play, the whole thing is basically about your first step mm-hmm. or how are you – turning a receiver on that first step how are you taking him out of his plan on that first step and if you go talk to brian hartline a lot of it go listen to his presentations a lot of it is what is what is your receiver doing on your first step that as you're saying you're selling you're selling a plan that you're probably not actually following through on it's Mm -hmm. your first step is it's it's disguising things and the, the i would take a savvy veteran receiver with that kind of speed that you're talking about over a guy who could burn it, but doesn't have that technique. I think that's what Ohio state wants to. And I think that's why those guys are on the field. But I also think that the, the important part of what the quest, the, the texter asked and thanks again to uh, what was it? Andrew from the seven, two, four, the important part is he does put in without JSN. So you put Jackson Smith, the Jigba back on the field too. And it changes this. And, and really and Julian Fleming is known as a, a, a toaster too. Like he's going to, mm-hmm. He's gonna put some um, he's gonna put some speed on the field too whenever he gets back out there. Uh, Todd in Annapolis, I don't know what it is. I don't know what is just not quite right about this team. I've been annoyed during both half times. I wish we would just establish the run. Dade did this with J.K., but we don't do that anymore. I'm gonna follow that up with uh, one from the six one four. I dismissed Kevin Wilson's comments a few weeks ago when you mentioned he said the offense in one of the scrimmages was ugly or something. Maybe there really was something to that. Oh, well, for for the I, I wanted to kind of get to this concept of just like this general like something just doesn't feel. We're talking about this with some of our colleagues after the game where they were like, "What do you say about this forty-five to twelve? But what really happened?" And I I get where fans are probably coming from. Where you want to see Ohio State come out 
against a team that is clearly at a much lower tier in college football and just blow them off the field. And when, when they don't blow them off the field, uh, we and you probably often look at it and say, something's not right that allowed that to happen. I think that was actually true today in some of the discipline mistakes that we saw and some of the sloppy play we saw that helped Arkansas State stay in this game longer than it should have. C.J. Stroud didn't want to hear any of those sort of comments when somebody brought up a question talking about how it was only 29-15 at halftime, and he very quickly was like, I I have no, I don't care what the score is at halftime as long as we're winning, although he did kind of add the caveat in, like, well, maybe if it was closer, I would have been, but whatever. Uh, but Wilson's comments a few weeks ago about the scrimmage being kind of the offense not looking that crisp. I think what he was specifically talking about was so often during preseason camp, you're rolling guys in three or four plays at a time. And when they had to drive eight, nine plays at a time, that's where you started to see breakdowns either in the blocking or maybe some sloppy penalty stuff. So then they made that an emphasis in practice the next week. That was what I remember him specifically talking about there. So that wasn't necessarily a a skill position issue. I think that was more a trenches issue that they tried to address. And again, that was several weeks ago. So I, I, I think that they probably have addressed that since then, but Steven, do you get what people are asking about, especially just in the uh, not winning these games, the way they think Ohio state should be winning them. They want Ohio state to do to these teams, what Bama does to these teams. We we did a video about should Ohio State be ranked higher than Alabama in the AP poll this week. That video, a lot of the things that were said in that were before we saw that Notre Dame lost to Marshall and a lot of other things that have happened around college football. So please, some of that stuff in that video, please disregard that I said it. Okay, please. But anyway, I, that's what it is. Ohio State, at least during my time covering the team, more importantly, just in my life, doesn't always do that. They don't always clearly look like the better team over a team that they clearly are the better team they are, which brings up these issues. Had Ohio State come out here and won 60 to 7, it's just like, all right, Ohio State did what it was supposed to do today. This guy looked good. Yep. Did this guy look good? Yep. Does this guy look good? Yep. Then we just kind of move on. But instead, because it's only 45 to 12, and because it was only, what was it, uh, 24 to 9 at halftime? Right. People are like, what's going on with this team? Especially when the reason why it's 24 to 9 is very easy to point out to, whether it's defensively with Denzel Burke's issues or because CJ is still trying to work it out with these receivers because Jackson Smith, the Jigba, isn't playing. Question here from and this kind of goes along the same lines. I mean, it's 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 the same topics from the 614. Curious on your thoughts regarding how the offense hits three and out potholes at certain points of the game that kill momentum. Trying to be reasonable and realize offense doesn't dominate all the time, but this was sometimes true last year when they would have two solid drives, get a couple stops on defense, and just throw up a random three and out with weird play calling. Is it just me? You, I want to bring this up in relation to Trevor Henderson. Uh, he had 87 yards and two touchdowns today, but on 10 carries, and it sure seemed like he carried the ball more than that, but I think it was because he had some big runs early. So he had 10 offensive touches today. Mayan Williams had nine offensive touches. So again, it's almost a perfect split between the two. And I I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get that. It feels like when you're watching these games live, Mayan Williams is playing more than Travion Henderson. And I think some of that is because Travion can pick up yards in such a quick pace that it almost is like, 
Like he had a 41 yard run, but outside of that, he didn't really do much. But with Mayan, it feels like he gets it and then 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 he gets it. They ran two screen passes from today. One of them was an incompletion and the other one was a bubble screen where I'm on second and 11, where I'm not really sure why they ran that play. But it was, there were a lot of stuff that happened today where you go, why doesn't Travion get any of that stuff? And if you ask him about it genuinely, even like off the record, he'll be like, no, I'm, I'm cool with whatever they're doing for me. I, I, I'm with, it's part of the reason he decided to come here with another running back was because he understands that, you know, if I don't put all this mileage on my body now, I'll have it still when I get to the league, which is cool and all that. But it's like watching it live. There's just why didn't Travion get this treatment? Why is it, that screen pass? If you're going to run it for anybody, run it for Travion. And that doesn't seem that at least the first two games that hasn't been the case. So it was about a 1.5 to one ratio in the first game on snaps. Trevion Henderson, 43 snaps. Yeah. Ryan Williams, 28 per pro football focus. I don't know what it was today. I haven't seen a snap count yet today. But in terms of who actually touches the ball more, the one thing that is true is that Trevion Henderson, it's more likely that Trevion Henderson has one of these big runs and then Mayan Williams comes in for him. Yeah. And that changes that dynamic a little bit. That's why it sometimes seems like Mayan Williams is on the field so much but ryan day was talking about the the differential and today it was 28 passes against 26 rushes and he said last year when they were about 60 percent pass that that was too much that that was too imbalanced that they have to be able to balance it more than that and so they're getting the kind of 50 50 split between run and pass that they want i just feel like when I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to explain this, the, the differential with, with Henderson and Williams. But like you said, Henderson isn't bothered by it. And that's maybe the biggest change in the dynamic between the last time they had a situation like this, where they were splitting mm-hmm. it between two guys when J.K. Dobbins absolutely had a problem with it. And before that, where, you know, you can go back to Ezekiel Elliott complaining about some of the, the carries that he got at times in his career. Trevin Henderson, for what he's saying out loud, uh, isn't having that problem. He says that he's comfortable with the way this is going, but I actually don't really care that much about that. I, if I was a fan, I don't know how much I'd care about that. I think I would want to know what is the most efficient thing for Ohio State's offense. But so also the other thing that's different here is it's 45 to 12, and that throws off the dynamic a little bit too. Like at some point, um, you're not playing to, uh, you're not, you don't have critical snaps anymore in this game. Yeah, I, I'm i very interested to see what this looks like in a competitive game going forward. Because I, I, I'm i even going to throw out the Notre Dame game because, as we said on that pod, they really only started running the ball in that one drive when they were trying to build the clock. Whether it's Wisconsin, who might still be good, who might not be, I don't know. I don't know who's good and who's not right now other than Georgia, but whether it's Penn State, Wisconsin, or down, I want to see what that distribution looks like when – they run the ball 40 plus times and somebody probably should get it 20. Going back to the three and out potholes. That is something Ryan day brought up that they had a couple of three and outs. Mm-hmm. And I think that really bugs him. Like if you to send his offense out there with the guys that he's the talent that Ohio state has brought in and you go three and out multiple times against Arkansas state, that's not a great sign. I know again, Arkansas state practices too as a, 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 a one of the wisest things one of my former colleagues ever said to me, you know, the other team practices too. And, and they had some guys that had played power five ball and you're not going to win a thousand percent of the time. But 
I think that was really grating on him. And it's one of the things that was, is going to bug him as he goes into film review. And I imagine he'll bring it up again later this week uh, from the five, seven, Oh, one more thing with the receivers before we take a break and talk defense. Hey, Nathan, will Fleming have a starting spot to return to these young guys are looking great. It's a fair question because Marvin Harrison jr. Is locked in and Jackson's bit. The Jigba is definitely returning to a starting spot. So when he's healthy enough to play, does Julian Fleming start, or is that Emeka Buka's starting spot right now? I'm not taking Emeka back off the field. He looks great the last two weeks. He's getting better by the week. I thought that 51-yard touchdown where – I mean, that's an awesome throw by CJ. It's a great play call by Ryan Day. But a lot of that is I did the work. Now you have to go get the rest of the yards. And Emeka did that. I'm not taking that off the field for a guy who's unproven. So, yes, Julian Fleming is a more unproven receiver in games than Emeka Buka. Um, that's indisputable. And I think I agree with you. I think I would, uh, I think Julian Fleming will play. I think he would probably yeah, rotate in sure. in the way that we thought. I just think it would be in the opposite order. I think I would probably still start at Buka and then I would rotate Fleming in and let him uh, get comfortable and show that he can do it at this level because Abuka's already doing it. And again, it's not a judgment of against Julian Fleming in some way. It's just the dynamic for the way this roster is played out. Anything you want to say about Stroud before we uh, – Luke Whipler looked okay today. I think the offensive line got through this game okay from an injury standpoint. Good play from the tight ends, I thought. Big catch for Cade Stover. Uh, Stroud said that was something they'd worked on in practice this week. Uh, I thought Mitch Rossi, uh, when they go to 12 personnel, looked strong. Mm-hmm. Um, so – uh, good play there. CJ Shaw was talking about that group's leadership being a big part of the offense. Anything you want to say about Stroud? We we did a uh, – people want to check our our uh, grading video that we did on him. We do that after every game. We both gave him B plus. Yeah, I thought he was good. I thought he was fine. Um, I mean, there's times where you <laughs> – actually, I am going to bring that up. There was one play where he did a bunch of scrambling, and then I forget who he found, but he found somebody for – I think it was Xavier Johnson – where I look at you and I go, um, CJ would have probably ran that because he got to his third read by the time he threw Fields it. Fields would have ran that. Yeah, I said, I said, I said Fields would have ran that, and you went, he probably would have scored a touchdown too. And I'm like, yeah, probably. And that's the difference between the two. But then the very next play, CJ Stroud throws a touchdown pass to Marvin Harrison, so it's irrelevant anyway. But, yeah, I thought he was fine. I thought he had a good day. I thought, just to point this out, I thought G Scott, when they did throw him in there sometimes, because they did a lot of 12 personnel today, which is part of that is day likes to have two tight ends on the field. But then also when you're down your best slot receiver and you don't, and your walk on is the next best slot receiver, you probably throw in a lot more 12 personnel just to offset that a little bit. I thought G Scott had some really good blocks. He had one block on, um, I think it was Mayan Williams' first run where he basically like threw a dude into the dirt after driving him back a little bit. So it's good to see that starting to develop. The the Him as a pass catcher, I really don't care about with this offense, but him as a blocker is clearly coming along. And Mitch Rossi had one. It was a play that was actually, a, it, it fizzled and went nowhere, but Mitch Rossi took a linebacker, I think, and just put him in the end zone almost from like, mm. from like 25 <laughs> yards out. So um, like I said, good day for the tight ends. If you're looking for a, one of those kind of weird, uh, in between the lines sort of things. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and answer your questions and listen to your comments, talk about your comments about the defense here on Buckeye Talk. It's only a kick. A jump. 
a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. We're back on Buckeye Talk. I want to look ahead to the Monday morning podcast. It's going to be me by myself for a couple of segments. I'm going to talk about some other things from this game after I get a chance to rewatch. I'm going to talk a little bit about my AP poll, although we're going to get into some national discussion here. But the big meaty middle of that podcast is going to be all three of us, Doug included, talking about the history of what would have happened with a 12-team playoff and what it tells us about what things could look at like in the future. So that's a nice big chunk, a big discussion we had the other day that we recorded just for the Monday podcast, and hope you all enjoy it. So that'll be up first thing Monday morning, uh, as as we usually do. So let's talk defense. A lot of questions on defense, and let's just get straight to the biggest one, which is, uh, this is Brian from the 740, where our expectations too high for Denzel Burke. He is not making plays and doesn't seem to be engaged. So go back to last season, Denzel Burke, had, I thought, a pretty bad game against Michigan, mm-hmm. as a lot of people did. He was not alone. Didn't look comfortable at all. A uh, kid from Arizona in the snow didn't work out. It wasn't good for him. I don't remember that much about him in the Rose Bowl. There were obviously a lot of other things happening that night. But uh, not a great grade in week one from the Pro Football Focus folks. Very mediocre in the 50s somewhere. And like we've always said, take that with a grain of salt. Don't don't make too much of one. It's more about over a period. But I imagine it'll be a worse grade this week. He had two pass interference calls on one play, or one drive, I should say, uh, although one of those was wiped out because the guy caught the ball. So he also didn't prevent his receiver from catching the ball there. He got really burnt down the sideline on one. There was another play along the sideline where I thought he just looked out of position and took a bad angle and, and got beat. Um this is a guy that I thought people, when you looked at this Ohio State defense and what was going to set the foundation this year, that was supposed to be a position where it wasn't a question anymore. And after after a couple of years, I guess, well, 20, and then going even into 21, because he was still not expected to be the kind of player he turned out to be last year, cornerback was a big question mark. And cornerback depth and like cornerback, the, the, high, the potential for high-end cornerback play was not assured and he was supposed to like lock that down a little bit and that hasn't happened through two games it's not looked good i think a lot of the other guys from that 21 class who got maybe more than they should have last year just based on how the year went have taken that and run with it this year i mean heck there's even some guys who didn't play at all last year and who have taken that to another exam a whole other standard this season but He's had two games where it wasn't necessarily the best wide receiver play he was going against, but his bad plays have looked very bad, and I'm not sure what the most quality thing he's done yet this year. And so we've had this conversation before, this idea of 
because he got here in the spring while Jordan Hancock and J.K. Johnson, the two top 100 corners from that class, got here in the summer, maybe he was ahead of them and able to take advantage of some opportunities they weren't able to take advantage of. And so now he was just ahead. But as they start to catch up, as they start to, you know, pull even as far as how long they've been in the program, maybe they get out of here and he ends up still being the third best of the three, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing if those two are what we think they are. But right now, it's concerning, one, because Jordan Hancock was out this game and was dealing with an injury for most of fall camp. And J.K. Johnson in two weeks went from it's still to be determined as far as whether or not he'll make an impact to this team to all of a sudden because they had a bunch of injuries. He looks great. So it's now we're talking about a depth issue while also the top end of that depth, the only corner who has looked quality from start to finish in two games so far is Cameron Brown, who kudos to him for holding up through those two games. So J.K. Johnson did not play against Notre Dame. So it's not like he proved himself to the point where he, we thought that there was going to be sort of a three person rotation. There was not against Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. It was two dudes out there for pretty much almost every snap. Hancock, or I'm sorry, Johnson did come in though in this game. Now it, it, it was, it was the, it was a series after Burt got beat on that sideline ball. And, they also subbed in a couple other people. They subbed uh, Lathan Ransom in for the first time, mm-hmm. which is another thing we'll talk about here in a minute is the Josh Proctor uh, revival story. And they subbed in Cam Martinez for Tanner McAllister on that same drive. So there were three secondary second string guys coming in. And Jim Knowles has been reticent to rotate guys back there. He says he likes guys getting in a game flow. Those other two to me, just seemed like guys who had maybe earned an opportunity to play. Whereas, and especially ransom ransom, we know played a lot in the first game. It was nothing to see him come in and play. And Martinez did get on the field for like at least a one or two snaps, I think in that first game. So he had been on the field, but with Johnson that seemed, I don't know if you want to use the word punitive, but it seemed like a, it seemed performance related in a way that those other two didn't. Like they needed somebody to come in and play better cornerback than Denzel Burke was playing. I don't know. And because of that, I'm not sure if this were last week, Denzel Burke would have come back like he did this week just because it's Arkansas State. So you can uh, afford you. Now, granted, it's not like J.K. Johnson came in and lit it up to the point where it's like, oh, we have to keep him on the field. But yeah, that that was it. Is, it seemed like. They gave Denzel Burke a little bit of a leash and it was going bad. And then it got to the point where Tim Walton felt like I have to take you out of the game. This is not going very well. And it might cost us the game. Cause at that point it wasn't so far out of the way that like you could just not think about it. I'm being, so I'm being very curious how this looks in the next couple of weeks. Hancock is still hurt and I would thought it was weird that he was not on the injury report in the first week and then didn't play and I think that was one of those cases I mentioned a couple times to our texters that like there's sort of like this stealth injury report like Ryan Day sometimes Mm -hmm. guys will be hurt but they don't actually show up in injury report but like Hancock and Cam Babb neither one were on the first week injury report at all the availability report and then both were on there as being out this week but Hancock both weeks has dressed he went through warmups today. He had his helmet during the game. Like he, in every way, but except being listed as out, he looks like he'd be ready to play. And we've seen guys not be listed at all. But as it turns out, we found out later they were hurt and weren't going to play. But we've never seen somebody listed as out and then they just end up playing. So I didn't think he was going to play today, but it 
still makes it seem like he isn't that far away. And then maybe they're just holding him out as a precautionary for, again, an opponent that they should beat 45 to 12, even if they don't play well in some aspects, which is obviously what happened. But if, if he's healthy, I think he gets in the mix here and maybe JK Johnson could be a bigger part of the mix, but the Hancock part though, even though I think, again, it looks like he might be not a long-term thing and can maybe help him somewhat soon. You got to kind of work back into game shape. I don't know where he is relative to that. And it might be still a couple of weeks before this cornerback play solidifies. It's just the way that they talked about Hancock makes it seem like what happened with the Josh Proctor, Lathan Ransom situation would have easily happened with Denzel Burke and Jordan Hancock had he been healthy. And so that's what makes this interesting. If they genuinely are missing their third corner and you feel like JK is a, still a little behind those two, then maybe last week against Notre Dame, they were in a position where it was like, Hancock's not there yet. This is not a game where we can afford to put JK out there. So we just got to live with Denzel and Cameron Brown being out there. And so if Hancock isn't back, it really comes down to if Hancock is not back by the Wisconsin game, is that still the case with J.K. Johnson? Is it still to the point that he's so far behind that they just have to live with Denzel Burke and Cameron Brown out there, which to the point of these next two weeks were seriously important from building depth standpoint. I J.K. Johnson, whatever level of reps he gets against Toledo are that much more important because of it. Let's go up to the, Defensive line, Mike Hall, three tackles for loss and a sack. Like, this is a thing. Like, this, that wasn't a fluke what we saw week one. No. This, this guy's a thing. I'm not even, mm-hmm. this isn't me trying to, to, to uh, promote the bus. Let's just say what it is. Let's call it like it is. Now, he did get a little bit banged up. Looked like it was maybe a left shoulder issue. He came off to the sideline. The trainers, the athletic trainers took his shoulder pads off. We're examining him, doing some, those things were like, you, you, grip their hands to see what kind of pressure you're getting and like mm-hmm. seeing some range of motion things. He put the so- shoulder pads back on. He had his helmet, but it was 45 to 12 already. There was no reason to be messing around with putting him back in the game. And we saw him running up the ramp to go. I, I think he's probably okay. Ryan day said after the game that there's no reason they, they, they did not think that there was any reason to think that's going to be a missed time injury. So let's talk about my call, but let's talk about it in this context because we got a text or question about the rest of that defensive line. Uh, this is his, uh, from the 859. He called it a post-game bad takeaway for the pod. The DEs overall were a little underwhelming. JT was good, but Sawyer didn't do anything out there. So Ohio State had 13, or, sorry, 12 tackles for loss. Three of them were by Mike Hall, um, and, uh, one and a half by Tyleek Williams, a couple by Cody Simon. The two sacks that they got, one by Mike Hall, and then one by Steel Chambers when both he and Tommy Eichenberg came on a blitz and they picked up Eichenberg, but that's you're getting numbers. They didn't pick up mm-hmm. Chambers by I mean, like they didn't even lay a pinky on him, and he was unabated to the quarterback and took him down. So still not getting a great pass rush off of the edge by themselves. And specifically about Jack Sawyer, I'm gonna I I, I gotta admit I didn't watch him extensively focusing on him. I'm giving a little bit of slack there because that is a new position. That is a new dynamic and a new look that Ohio state is playing with. And I think it might, you know, I'll give him some benefit of the doubt that it takes a little while to get fully comfortable there and figure out what he's supposed to do. I think he's got more responsibilities and more ways. He has to think about the game than he did a year ago where you could just come off the end as a, a rush end. There's more going on with that Jack spot, but I think it's worth noting that 
we haven't really seen the edge guys get home yet much. They don't have a sack yet, but I think the ends are playing fine. Uh, Jack Sawyer was like 0.1 seconds between getting a sack, and he actually ended up with a pressure, and it was an incompletion. Um, there was another play where I think uh, uh, Arkansas State's quarterback like threw the ball like four yards into the stands because the ends were getting home. I mentioned this to you. Zach Harrison is winning a lot. It's just like the times he was winning, unfortunately, the play design was taking them to the other side of the field, so there was no way he was going to get a sack. And a lot of that, I know it sounds like an excuse, but it's genuinely not. I think the ends are doing their jobs. They're containing the edge in the run game, which is great, and they're beating their man one-on-one. It's just because they're beating their man one-on-one, these quarterbacks step up. Mike Hall has also been awesome on the interior, so he ends up in this with the sack. But the one thing I have seen, whether it's in the run game or in the passing game, regardless of who actually gets the stat, the cleanup job when they're finishing off these tackles is more than just one person. And that's what lets me know the defensive line is working well. I even joked with this with you. I was like, Mike Hall got there. He did his job, but now he's off celebrating while everybody else is finishing up his work. Yeah. <laughs> like, that did happen. That was funny. Yeah. That, to me, is just a showing of how well a defensive line is playing as a sack, which some of that is just you don't always have control over. Pressures are almost a better stat than sacks are. Even NFL coaches will tell you that. So I think the defensive line is playing fine. But, like, there's no chase, Sean. Fine. Uh, we, we've said that enough times at this point that we can stop talking about it now. I think this defensive line is putting pressure on quarterbacks, and they're, it's a lot of gang tackling. It's not just – Oh, this guy's not on the field, so nothing's happening. JT Tuimaloal did have uh, these these post game stats are always a little weird on like hurries Defensive and pressure stats, and stuff. Yeah. Defensive stats I are think hard. the tackles and sacks and TFLs are right. Obviously, the interceptions are right. Even the pass breakups are usually kind of close. And actually, Denzel Burke was credited with two pass breakups today, but they only have what them does down that for mean three. You targeted twelve times. Wow. Well, the yeah. other the other ten times you gave up stuff. So well, and and I'll get back to that in a second. But um, Tuma Loal was credited with two of the three hurries that they had today, mm-hmm. according to these stats. I'm glad you actually brought that up though with the Denzel Burke thing. So we mentioned earlier this week this guy Champ Flemings, the receiver for Arkansas State, five foot five. And Doug was the one to say, like, do you know how tough that guy has to be to be five foot five and be playing major college football? Targeted 10 times today, 10 catches for 105 yards. Like that man went out and did everything he could to keep -hmm. this game competitive against Ohio State. And regardless of how well Denzel Burke played, I want to give that guy credit. I was I was kind of, you know, um, being a little bit uh, glib about the fact that he's only five, five and listen, I'm five, like eight on a good day. So who am I to, to judge? But again, like he had, he was the one on the end of that 58 yard reception uh, the, where he burned Burke and 10 of 10 for 105 yards. That's a pretty good day for a receiver. And he was out there returning kicks and stuff for them too. So uh, kudos to him, but that's the kind of guy, again, the guy who couldn't even break the lineup at Oregon state, which is not really a good pack 12 team. And he's in here doing things against Ohio State. Like I think that's the kind of stuff that that readers or listeners are looking at, or the Ohio State fans are looking at, and thinking like, what what's going on? Um, from the eight one six is actually Jeff in Mississippi. This felt like a big game hangover from last Saturday. It looked like players came out expecting an easy one, which explains the penalties and lack of discipline early on. Final score should have been closer to the betting spread based on the matchup. The betting spread was forty four and a half. I cashed on both sides of what I picked taking giving giving the points 
with Arkansas State, or taking the points with Arkansas State, I should say, and and the under. Stephen, how'd you do? I think you had um, a, you have a split day, or you 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 lost. No, both? I split last week. I lost both this week. Not yeah, a good week for me. Better look next time. The penalties were an issue. <laughs> penalties, nine issues for or nine penalties for eighty five yards for Ohio State. And, you know, early on, it was the offense. There was a point where Arkansas State had 15 yards of offense. And we're talking about like after maybe like three series had 15 yards of offense and 30 yards from Ohio State in penalties. Plus, then the one that took the punt off the board uh, when um, Taraja Mitchell got flagged for jumping over the the, the punt unit, the, the blocking unit. And which is a new penalty, I think, or a, a modified penalty for this year, and gives a possession back to Arkansas State. Ryan Day was talking about that after the game, that you know there was another one late in the game where they, they gave them another possession with, I guess, a turnover. And you can't give – like you, in this game, it doesn't show up. But against even a team like Wisconsin, who they're going to play in a couple weeks, that defense is going to have enough to say about that game that when you start giving that offense possessions – you put yourself in danger and they've got to find a way to clean up the discipline stuff. There was, but I also think there's been signs of accountability. So this is where I want to talk about Josh Proctor. Last week, Proctor blows the tackle on the first series against Notre Dame and then really doesn't play the rest of the game. That became Lathan Ransom's job for that week. Earlier this week, Ryan Day talked about how well Lathan Ransom had played and that, Ultimately, it was his call, and he thought that Lathan Ransom would start. Josh Proctor started, and Josh Proctor played the bulk of this game. And talking to Josh Proctor after the game, it seemed like he knew a message had been sent with the way that they made that substitution and that he had received it, that mm-hmm. he didn't do his job on that play. And Ohio State put in somebody to see if they would do it, and when they did, those guy, that guy got to play. Which brings me around to the Tron Vincent situation, which is something happened at the end of the first half, and I still haven't seen exactly what it was, but he was whistled, flagged for an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty for something he did or said at as the half was ending, or as they were maybe leaving the field. I don't know. And we didn't see him in the second half. I don't believe he played the second half. And there definitely seems to be some accountability here, and it's the kind of accountability you get to have when you aren't terrified of your lack of depth. Yeah. Last year, if you had had a guy who was your starting safety, especially after Proctor got hurt, if you were mad at your starting safeties, you kind of had to just live with it until the end of the game, because who are you putting in there? If you were upset at a starting corner, who are you putting in there? Um, Even to a certain extent on the defensive line, you could make a substitution there, but you weren't, you were maybe taking a dip because Guys were young and hadn't were, were still coming along. And I think now Ohio State has built some depth where it gets to hold its players a little bit more accountable because let's face like we saw that there is no drop-off, no significant drop-off in, in a pretty big matchup between Proctor and and uh and Ransom. And I think we saw tonight, and it's hard to hard to say. 45 to 12. The game was already in hand, really. The, the way Ohio State came out in the second half. They didn't need Teron Vincent to do what they did, but they did some things without him. The first Arkansas State drive of the second half, Ohio State came out and scored. Arkansas State ran three plays and went negative on all three plays. And the first tackle there was by the guy who came in for Teron Vincent. That was Tyleek Williams. 
I think Dewan Jones and Paris Johnson might be the only two people on this roster. Oh, no. Oh, and Jackson Smith, the Jigba, where even if he's not your best option, there wouldn't be a freak out if they had to go to the second option. And I think that's what you're getting at here. But even with CJ Stroud, it's like Kyle McCord's a five-star quarterback. There's a level of talent there. Now there might be some time for him to develop that if you had to play him, but like, I don't think, especially year two, Kyle McCord, I don't think Ryan Day would like scoff at it if he got put in a position where he had to play him. And that's part of this. It's like last year there was a, what are you going to do, not play me? You're going to play the true freshman who just got here two weeks ago and doesn't know what he's doing? No, we're not going to do that. This year, yes, we're going to put Talik Williams in the game. Yes, we're going to put Lathan Ransom in the game. Yes, we're going to put J.K. Johnson in the game. And that is a big difference. But to the point with the penalties, what you're getting at there, some of these penalties are just bonehead penalties they're not that, like holding penalties those happen pass interference penalties those can happen sometimes like cl- even clipping some of these are you know that's just football they can happen the unsportsman like conduct penalties that's just you being a bonehead and they've had a couple of those these first two weeks where it feels like ohio state is getting a little too caught up in like the theatrical stuff that comes with playing college football than actually just playing because even with teron vincent thing to use an example that i did see last week when Ohio State was coming from school session and walking through the field to get to the locker room the way they usually do, typically the opponent team is spread out all over the field because Ohio State's not there yet so they can use the whole field. And the way Ohio State was walking, Notre Dame's wide receivers were working out through there. And Ryan Day's like, when, what are y'all doing? Get out of our way so we can walk. And, you know, just normal coach stuff. And But I'm watching Teron Vincent, like, making mean mugging faces and talking trash to all the Notre Dame players. And that stuff is cool, but, like, that's there's a time and place for all that, and I would assume that's something similar to what happened this week. Is that Teron Vincent just got caught, caught talking some trash or getting involved in something that, quite frankly, is not relevant or necessary in that moment? Yeah, again, I don't know what happened. I didn't see yeah. what happened, and they didn't specify what happened. They just said that there was a penalty. Right. I, I think it was as the teams were leaving the field, but I'm not sure. From the 816, no, I'm sorry. This is Rick in the ATL. Court Williams, where he at? Well, Court Williams was on the field for the opening uh, for the coin toss. He was one of the captains for the coin toss today, but still not playing much. He had one tackle today. He did come in in the second half and got some, you know, that second string run. They finally got to put guys in. I think he would have played more if they had maybe taken care of business in the first half better. That shouldn't have been a twenty-four to nine game at halftime. All, all, all apologies to C.J. Stroud. They should have put that game away earlier and gotten some more time. I mean, uh, too early to start talking about the 2020 situation where you didn't get to like build those guys in, but like it's, it is the first missed opportunity like that. They got like one quarter of it. They really should have got more like one and a half or one and two thirds quarters of it. There probably, there should have been more points on the board in the first half, but I don't know what to say about the court Williams thing because the one thing that is a little bit different is when when Proctor whiffed. So our assumption all along is that just because of who he is and the kind of athlete he is, that Court Williams was the number two bandit. Yep. And when Proctor whiffed and they wanted somebody else, they went to Lathan Ransom as the number two bandit. And they talk about the interchangeability of those safety spots and whatever. And Hickman is almost just Hickman and stays on the field, but he is the adjuster. That is his ultimately his position so now i guess hickman is the backup adjuster 
or maybe Ransom is just the backup safety at both. He's going to be the second safety on the field. I don't know, but I just, I don't know. I don't have a great grasp right now on where court Williams gets on the field in a first string kind of way, just because they showed, we thought maybe in that matchup with Notre Dame that he would even be on the field in more of a linebackerish thing, or he would play some nickel safety to get a more linebacker type body on the field. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I don't know where he gets on the field with this defense. And I think it, it's been a while since you've had a young guy ascend to a captaincy, but also not really have a spot on the field. I think next year, you know, Ronnie Hickman's gone. Tanner McAllister's gone. There's uh, I mean, Josh Proctor's gone. So there's spots up for grabs next year. And they've got to, you know, maybe he gets in the mix this year because we don't know who stays on the field this year. Things happen. But right now, I just don't know where to put Court Williams on the field. He's their fourth best safety. And this is where, like, two deeps are irrelevant. It's almost how we talk about with the wide receivers, how, like, Ameka Buka's everybody's backup, but he's just, like, the fourth best receiver. Well, now he's probably the third best receiver the way this has gone. Or a better way to look at this is how the linebacker situation is. Cody Simon was a Mike linebacker last year. But it's very clear at this point that Tommy Eichenberg's not coming off the field. But if Cody Simon is your second or third best linebacker, what do we see now? Tommy doesn't come off, and there's a split at will linebacker between Steel Chambers and Cody Simon. So now Cody Simon's the will linebacker. If Lathan Ransom is your third best safety and you know Ronnie Hickman's not coming off the field, what are we seeing instead? What we're probably going to see the rest of the season is some type of whether it's a rotation or just somebody plays all the snaps that week, but like the ro- whatever is happening is going to be happening at bandit because Ronnie Hickman doesn't come off the field. So if that's how you're looking at it, then what's the hierarchy Hickman's number one Proctor and Ra- ransom or two or three. And it might flip depending on who's playing better that week. But no matter how you look at it, Hickman's number one and court Williams is number four. And if he wasn't going to play, in a game against like Notre Dame where like that body type is perfect to put on Michael Mayer. I don't see another game this season where he's playing meaningful snaps. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I go that far. Maybe there's a different matchup that we're not seeing, but it's the, the big, the greater point you're making is the correct one that he's third. It's not just that he's a fourth safety. It's that he's third at bandit right now. And if Hickman doesn't come off the field, and you're not going to play him at slot corner because he doesn't really have that sort of body, then I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, nickel safety, slot corner, whatever. But then I, I don't, I, you're right. I don't know where his path to the field is right now. And now I understand why fans get antsy about that because they don't want to see guys leave. And when guys don't play, they often leave. But they you also don't like to lose. And if he's only your third best guy, then he shouldn't be playing ahead of the other two guys. Like, where do you go? What other position do they go three deep? Maybe defensive tackle, but that's a very different physical dynamic. Yeah. That you're you're rolling guys in more there because it's a greater toll on the body. It's like a wrestling match in there mm-hmm. all the time. And they only wrestle like three minute periods for a reason, dudes. So like it's it, it, Knowles is not gonna just force guys into onto the field. I think he's genuinely has talked about Court Williams in a positive way. I think he likes the way Court Williams plays, but I think he likes Lathan Ransom more. Yeah, but I think he might, which I think he might be third at adjuster too, if he was there. Because, Maybe. yeah, like if Ronnie Hickman got hurt or was okay, sorry, we don't do the hurt thing. If Ronnie Hickman got abducted by aliens, 
I think that your starting two safeties would be Lathan Ransom and Josh Proctor. So that that's what I that's how I'm looking at this. And if that's the case, that's why I went as far as say I don't know what game he plays meaningful snaps in because Hickman doesn't come off the field, and if he's off the field, Lathan Ransom and Josh Proctor are out there. And since Hickman's not coming off the field, it's either going to be Hickman and Proctor or Hickman and Ransom. From the 989, is the lack of turnovers generated on a defense concerning through two games? Today felt very bend but don't break against a pretty underpowered opponent. No edge on defense. So a couple of things there. I mean, turnovers, generating turnovers is I don't know how much of a science it is. You've got to be a little bit lucky. Ohio State was really close on a couple. There was one for Cam Brown that very easily could have been a pick six. Yep. There was another one earlier in the game. I don't remember who it was that they got a paw on it. It looked like they might have been able to, to, to corral it and just missed it. So they're close on the turnovers. The lack of edge thing, I, I mean, it. I get the bend but don't break thing. But the way that they have stiffened up in the red zone, I think, is not just a silver lining. I think it does show something about this defense. Like teams are getting the ball downfield, and then the defense can stack up plays and mm-hmm. stop them in their tracks. You don't want the first thing to happen, but if it does, you have to have the second thing happen, and it is. Like they've given up, you know, six scores through two games, but five of them are field goals. And at Ohio State, you will take that. A- a thousand times a day like that that wins you national championships that wins you national championships if you're just giving up field goals uh, that often now is it going to hold up all year against better teams they'll have to be better but still uh, the edge thing too it's like you can see how guys are being used like tommy eichenberg is a weapon in this defense like dim yeah. using him as a weapon he's using steel chambers as a weapon and mike hall is clearly just weaponizing himself a little bit with the way he's playing up front. Like there, there are some things happening in this defense that is still a defense that's growing and developing and evolving because they they're only two games into having put it on the field. I, I, I'm not ready to say this defense doesn't have the edge it needs. I think that what you are seeing though, is you, you've seen them give up some big plays and you've seen it happen because maybe they took a gamble like they did on the first play against Notre Dame and a guy missed a tackle where you're seeing one blown coverage. But the way that this defense doesn't allow that to snowball, I think is a positive thing. I don't think it's a fake positive thing. I think it is a legitimately positive thing. It's you, you don't want the first thing to happen. Yeah. You don't want to give up the big play, but when it happens and you then shut it off, I'm I, like I've said all along like that that's as good as this defense probably has to be. That gets you to be like a top 25ish defense and you're 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 winning a whole lot of football games this year. I think Jim Knowles has dialed up some plays to cause a turnover. The opponent just isn't turning the ball over. <laughs> if that's the simplest way to put it in to the point of like turnovers are luck sometimes. Oklahoma State had one of the best, maybe the best defense in the country. And Ohio State's defense sucked last year, and they both caused the same amount of turnovers. They both had 20. That that should tell you right there. It's a lot of luck. It's a lot of, you know, somebody made a play, and then somebody t- fully – like the Cam Brown thing, That's a that should have been a pick six, but it's not. But does that make it a bad situation because he didn't get a pick six? And no, the, the, the play did what it was supposed to do. 
the Jim Knowles' job and what he has talked about constantly is to make quarterbacks think that extra second that they want to. Now, sometimes because he thought an extra second that he wanted to, that means the defensive lineman's going to get home and maybe get a strip sack. Other times, if he's rushing, it might end up in him throwing a pass he shouldn't have thrown into pick. But for the most part, it just means that there's no explosives or very minimal explosives, and they're not getting in the end zone. And so far, Ohio State's defense has done that. Yeah, I, you just go back to last year when things would snowball pretty quickly on this defense at times. Yes. Uh, in, in, the, in the most obvious ways, the most obvious games. I, I don't know if it was a 12-week problem, but it, was, it only had to be a two-week problem to keep them out of the playoff, mm-hmm. and it absolutely was. And this year, I think you're seeing signs of some resiliency. Now, Denzel Burke has to play better. They need to get home more up front besides just my call and what they're doing off the blitz. I think they've got to find a way to get a more penetration just off the four-man rush. Uh, but Jim Knowles also, I mean, this is a little bit the design of this. Like, he, he likes to bring those those linebackers on a blitz because you, he is confident in the play of the safeties and the defensive backs behind him. That just has to continue. They can't have uh, letdowns in that secondary, and they have had a couple letdowns in secondary the first couple of weeks. And, you know, you're two weeks in. It's one of the things that they will try to clean up. We're going to come back from break. We're going to talk about some of the other things that happened in college football today and the context that that has for Ohio State. You're listening to Buckeye Talk. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back on Buckeye Talk. College football got a little drunk today. Uh, this Ohio State, Arkansas State result was like one of the more normal results of the day. Weird things. Uh, Marshall goes into Notre Dame and wins 26 to 21. Marshall, I asked uh, Tishu where they were on his power rankings. He said 58th, I think. So think about that uh washington state wins 17 14 at wisconsin so again washington state has been a bad team for a, a couple of years and to go on the road and get a win like that uh boy the grand merch thing just it doesn't look like it's it doesn't look like it's gonna happen we've been waiting for that to yeah, happen no, for it, like three that, years now <laughs> that peaked with one forgettable night against illinois when they were just in the middle Ooh. of whatever and uh, it's over already. Appalachian State, 17-14 at Texas A&M last week. North Carolina had to cl- fight and, 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 and scratch and claw to beat Appalachian State. I think on the road. I think I was in Appalachian State. And um, 
And everybody thought that that was a sign of how bad the Tar Heels were this year. And now Apache comes back and beats a team that other people were ranking six. I didn't have them quite that high. It's just been a, a bit of a weird day. I think there's some other uh, – anything else that's popped up since we started recording? I can't uh, – had my eye on the results. I mean, Tennessee beat Pittsburgh, but those are two ranked teams. So that's yeah, no, that, Tennessee's not bad. That, that's yeah. a good win. That's a good win for uh, Tennessee, though. Go on the road and beat Pittsburgh. Yeah, I, I really like Hendon Hooker. I think he's a good quarterback. But other than that, no, everything else has been pretty quality. I mean, Oklahoma State is losing to Arizona State three to nothing right now. But yeah, that's that's early. Uh, yeah. But the, obviously, the Notre Dame one is the one that needs to be talked about primarily. You know, as this game ended, well, okay, then we also forgot about. Alabama needs a last-second field goal to beat Texas, and mm-hmm. we were in the interview room over on the other side of the stadium, and they had that game on the TV. And I was kind of, I was joking later with Jerry Emig, the SID. I was like, "Hey, if Day had started to walk in, I think we would all said like, wait, wait, wait,' because we were watching the end of that game." But he said, "Well, they had it on the locker room too. Everybody was crowded around the TVs in the locker room, waiting to see how that game ends." Alabama, so Quinn Ewers starts, looks pretty good early for Texas, gets mm-hmm. hurt, and then. They couldn't ever quite put text, put Alabama away, and Alabama comes down and kicks a field goal with inside the final thirty seconds, and uh, you know Texas couldn't respond to that. They they lose twenty to nineteen. So immediately, a lot of messages from Ohio State fans like, "Well, Ohio State beat the number five team in the country and lost, or and and fell in the rankings. So if Alabama beat an unranked team, then they have to fall too, right?" And uh, I want to explain a couple things to people. <laughs> First of all. Every individual voter is different. So just because Notre Dame was ranked number five collectively doesn't mean that's how every voter looks at it. I had them a couple spots lower, for instance. Uh, And in the case of Texas, Alabama, Texas was unranked, but I had them in my top 20, I think. Like there were other people who who will consider that a better win for Alabama. Uh, Secondly, where a team was ranked at the time doesn't really matter. Because especially in week one, we find out a lot more about teams. Um, you know, for instance, uh, last year, Ohio State is ranked number two in the country, and then Oregon comes in and beats them, and suddenly they're not the number two team in the country anymore. Because it doesn't mean that it, it's like not a good win still for Oregon, but you don't get to carry that credit of beating that ranking forever. I know on paper you do, but in the way people are assessing your team, it's more about what the team that beat you looks like long-term and what the team you beat looks like long-term. So anyway, I've just tried to explain to people that this is still very much like in flux. It's very fluid right now. And Georgia, like we said, they beat up on Samford. Uh, I would not be surprised if Georgia moves up to number one. I think that's who I would still vote number one after what I've seen through two weeks, I have not sat down to assess my ballot because I've got still this podcast to do and some other things. I think my top three might still be the same as it was last week, but you like, you understand like you beat Notre Dame when, when people had ranked them number five, but Notre Dame's not the fifth best team in the country. Notre Dame might not even be in the top 25 anymore after this week. Yeah. Notre Dame really didn't help itself today. They, they lost by double digits to Marshall, man. That's, no, they only lost. I, it was only 26-21 at the end. They did go down and oh, score. Oh, they scored again? Like, okay. They averaged 3.5 yards a carry. They uh, threw three interceptions, including a pick six late that pretty much sealed this. Uh, the, the Notre Dame offense is bad. It's bad. It's maybe not that much better than Arkansas State's offense, frankly. And 
we probably now again our our assessment of that is going to probably change contextually as the season goes along but like that's you can't like this, this Notre Dame offense is just not good or Marshall's a whole lot better than we thought it's one of those two things but either way Notre Dame's 0-2 right now and losing the Marshall at home when you're the eighth ranked team in the country if you don't have Notre Dame next to your name it probably knocks you out of the top 25 we'll see what the voters do with him I'm it's, I'm leaning towards probably not having them in my top twenty five this week. It's, it's still my going back to last season. Marcus Freeman's lost his first three games as the head coach there. Never uh, happened. That's never happened. It's never happened at Notre Dame ever, which is already a, a bad thing. Really, what this means is Ohio State doesn't have a signature win anymore. Because at worst, even if Notre Dame had somewhere pulled this win out, they probably still drop. But they're probably still like a top fifteen team, maybe. When it boils down to it, but now, as you just said, they might not even be in the top 25 anymore. So now, Ohio State goes into that Wisconsin game still looking for the signature win, which, quite frankly, also might not even be a signature win by the time the end of the season gets here because Wisconsin doesn't look very good either. And none of this matters much if Ohio State just runs the table and runs every single game. They're right. going to be a playoff team. This is only a discussion because we're talking about what if Ohio State loses? Then what are their signature wins that still get them into the playoff as a one-loss Big Ten champ? But if Ohio State keeps doing what it's supposed to do, then this is all irrelevant anyway. Yeah, I would caution people. And again, I'm an AP voter, so I and I try to take that seriously. I think it is an interesting snapshot each week of to get this collective opinion. But we're all not trying to get the same opinion. You don't want 63 equal ballots. It's 63 different ballots that come together and come to a consensus. And that's a snapshot in time for posterity of what's happening each week in college football for eternity now they're they're going to keep doing them forever so i think that's a good thing but if you're an Ohio State fan i would just not get too wrapped up in this like uh the jealousy of like if alabama's getting credit for something that you're not or because it's all just subjective opinions and the thing you need to worry about as an Ohio State fan right now is literally only how well is your team playing because if your team plays very well and gets better each week, you're not going to have to worry about where anybody's ranked. You're going to win the Big Ten. You're going to win the Big Ten championship game. You're going to go to the playoff. Like, that's really all that is ahead of you. The only thing that would trip that up is if there just happens to be a team that's better than you, and that'll get proven on the field. So last year, the thing that uh, jobbed Ohio State was not the polls. The thing that jobbed Ohio State was Ohio State's coaching and personnel. And this year, they seem to have solved a lot of that worry less about the degree to which I think they've solved that or other voters think they've solved that and worry more about the degree to which it's actually true. That's the thing you need to be thinking about right now. And there are so many good signs as much as we definitely talked about some negative things on this podcast, whether that was the discipline that led to the penalties or some of the weird stuff on offense. A lot of good things happened today from Marvin Harrison and Emeka Buka and CJ Stroud and uh, the, the efficiency of the running game and some of the things on defense, like all of it. So keep building on that, and everything else will take care of itself. With all that being said, we had a lofty conversation at 4 o'clock in the morning last week about is Ohio State, should that be in the same conversation as Alabama and Georgia, just based off how they played against Notre Dame? Uh, I think Georgia's in the conversation by themselves right now, and Alabama and Ohio State are in the same convo. Based off what now, Grant, I would have to also go back and rewatch a lot of that Bama game because it was happening while I was also, you know, covering this game. But yep. just that offensive line doesn't look good. And that offense very much right now looks like the Bryce Young show. 
and they've got an awesome defense, which is cool, except like Bryce Young doesn't have a Jackson Smith the Jigba coming back later on this season, the way CJ Stroud has these two receivers growing while also, hey, Jackson Smith the Jigba is coming back very soon. And this defense looks quality. While right now, George is the only team of that trio that we're talking about as like the prob- probable playoff locks, as long as they do what they're supposed to do, who are handling teams the way they're supposed to handle them. Because, yes, Texas is better than a team who was unranked. They probably should have been ranked, as you have already ranked them. They're a quality team. But Alabama shouldn't have been struggling with them, and Will Anderson hasn't looked good to these first two games. Like At least statistically, he hasn't looked like the dude who had 17 and a half sacks last year. Yeah, again, I, I've not like broken down Alabama's yeah. film, so right. some of that could be the attention he's getting. That's, mm-hmm. but but Chase Young got a lot of attention and still put up a lot of numbers. So, yeah, uh, we've seen that firsthand, and then Will Anderson did last year too. God knows. I would just again the thing that I would bring up to people is, like, so you let's make the Ohio State Alabama comparison. Alabama beat Utah State. They both played, I think, two teams that are essentially in the same tier. Utah State and Arkansas State are basically the same tier of college football. They're probably very close. And Ohio State looked all right beating Arkansas State at home, and Alabama obliterated Utah State, beating 55 to nothing. It was a better win of a team at the same tier. So then it just gets down to where you put Notre Dame and Texas. Now, a lot of those people I was just mentioning were making those kind of snide comments about the, the Notre Dame, Ohio State, Alabama comparison before Notre Dame then went out and lost to Marshall. So I would say, like, I, here, I'll look at my ballot because I, I want to make sure I say this the right way. I, right now, Texas and Notre Dame are in the same tier of college football, I would say. I would put those teams pretty close, but I think you might have to put Texas higher right now. Uh, they're um, First of all, they haven't. They're not 0-2. Um, mm-hmm. But at the at worst, they're at essentially the same place in college football right now. I don't care what other people ranked them in the preseason. I don't care even what other people had them ranked. And so I think what I'll be doing and what I hope every pollster is doing this week is saying, what do I think of Notre Dame now? What do I think of Texas now? And how does that affect where I should vote Ohio State and Alabama? Uh, I had Notre Dame 12th. I had Texas 19th on my ballot. So Ohio State beating Notre Dame at home 21 to 10 and Alabama winning on the road at Texas 20 to 19 are about the same. If you if you're someone who's voting those teams in that range. You see what I'm saying? Like I'm not saying to you, but I'm kind of getting to No, some of the no, no, yeah, I'll, I'll play I the role of the audience into, in this. Yeah, in this. I want to take people into how I think yeah. about my ballot, how I think other people should think about their ballot is um is that it's not about you have to reassess every week and base it on what you know about what the teams actually are that week, your, your evaluation, what the teams actually are that week, not what they were perceived to be weeks before. And that applies to Ohio state too. So I don't hate that logic. So let me combat it with the context. Quinn Ewers got hurt at the end of the first quarter. So now Alabama did all that while going up against a backup quarterback while Ohio state did theirs while also losing their best weapon, 15 snaps into the game. 
And I think that's where it starts to look more in Ohio State's favor that their win over Notre Dame is more impressive, especially in this world, using your logic, where you think they're basically the same tier team, which I kind of, I agree with you. I think Texas and Notre Dame are pretty comparable in terms right. of what they are as complete teams, except Texas is better on offense than they are on defense. But like Alabama's offense struggled against Texas's defense while also winning a game that I'm not confident saying that Alabama pulls out that win if Quinn Ewers doesn't get hurt. Yeah, I, I I think that's a good point. I then we also get into some circular logic situations where it's does did Alabama's offense underwhelm against Texas's defense, or did Texas's defense prove itself against Alabama? And I am saying that without having watched the game because I was watching the yeah. game that all of you all of you uh, pay us uh, three ninety nine a month for, or subscribe to our podcast to hear us talk about. That's the game that we primarily talk about, and the one that we will keep talking about for the other five, six podcasts we do this coming week. But I just wanted to kind of take people into how I thought about it so that when I come here and on the Monday podcast and tell you how I did vote, you'll have a little idea of how I came to that conclusion. Anything else you want to say, Stephen, before we sign off? I haven't eat, had a thing to eat today uh, since the game. I haven't had a, a chance to, you know... Um, ordered roosters. As like we started this third segment, I ordered roosters, so it'll be ready by the time we were done oh, with nice. it. Yeah. My wife, uh, on her way home, she was out doing something and uh, on her way home stopped at – I'm going to go ahead and call this place out. It's maybe the single worst <laughs> fast food location in the known universe. It's the KFC on Main Street in Bexley, yeah. right on the like the west end of Bexley. And every time we've ever tried to go there, it is just a customer service catastrophe. And it happened again tonight. And uh, so uh, the KFC Bexley um, maybe needs to like – they need to get a. They need a new coach. They need someone to come in and and establish some culture and some discipline and get things going in the right direction. But I'm going to go eat sir. some. I'm going to go eat some cold chicken and uh, write some more stuff. Our observations will be on the site in the morning, and uh, all all of my AP poll stuff will be on the site tomorrow, along with the betting line, along with all the other stuff that we bring to you on Sundays. Ohio State's players of the week usually come out Sunday night. So full day of coverage. Cleveland.com/slash/osu. Hope you come read us. For Stephen Means, I'm Nathan Baird. That was Buckeye Talk.